Chapter 4. The Perfection of Martyrdom. Quote, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Unquote. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. In a book about martyrdom, it would be foolish to not highlight the first follower of Jesus to meet that end. Interestingly, other than when one of my small groups walked verse by verse through the book of Acts, I've never heard someone teach on Stephen's trial and martyrdom in Acts chapter 6 through 7. That's quite unfortunate, given that Stephen's account contains what is easily the longest speech in the entire book. Luke, the author of Acts, clearly thought this scene was imperative for his readers to understand, especially since James's martyrdom in chapter 12 is only given one verse. Acts chapter 6 first introduces us to Stephen as a man the entire congregation of believers thought was full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who humbly embraced the responsibility of making sure widows were taken care of during the daily distribution of food. Luke goes on to describe Stephen as full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power, and someone who is performing great wonders and signs among the people. We are also told that Stephen spoke boldly about the gospel in the synagogues and argued so persuasively that no one was able to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us, quote, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Unquote. Just as the Jewish authorities became envious of the crowds that followed Jesus, frustration began to consume the Jews who debated with Stephen. Also similar to his rabbi, Stephen is dragged before the Sanhedrin and given a sham of a trial, with false witnesses bringing unfounded accusations against him. In verse 15, Luke adds an important detail which we will come back to later. Quote, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. F.B. Meyer writes about this scene. Quote, All the Sanhedrists saw the countenance of Stephen angelically glorified. A superhuman, angel-like glory became externally visible to them. Unquote. Keep that picture in mind as you read on. Stephen begins his address by stating that the God of glory appeared to Abraham. The first time the phrase God of glory is used in the Bible is in Psalm 29, a short psalm about the power of the voice of the Lord and a call to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Not surprisingly, one of the main themes of Stephen's speech is that the Israelites have historically failed to do just that. As a pattern, they reject the voice of the Lord and oppress his messengers like Joseph and Moses. In fact, that's the whole reason Stephen is on trial. Concerning the treatment of Moses, Stephen says, quote, This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, 
Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Unquote. Peter cited that same prophecy in Acts chapter 3, which led to his and John's arrest by the Sanhedrin. Another aspect of Stephen's address is that the people are just as prone to idolatry as they are to persecuting God's messengers. They have a habit of preferring the works of their own hands to the worship of the invisible, glorious God. He then concludes with this sharp rebuke, quote, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Unquote. When Stephen mentioned the righteous one, he was calling two things to mind. First, Peter used the same title when referring to the murder of Jesus in Acts chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, quote, But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead a fact to which we are witnesses, unquote. Additionally, Stephen is calling the Sanhedrin's mind back to Isaiah chapter 24, verses 15 through 16, quote, Glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, Glory to the righteous one. But I say, Woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously, unquote. Stephen just told the men who were supposed to be responsible for helping God's people stay faithful to his covenant that they murdered God in the flesh. As you can imagine, these same men who orchestrated the execution of the Messiah, the same men who had imprisoned, threatened, and beaten all of the apostles, did not take kindly to Stephen's words. The treacherous dealt very treacherously with the one seeking to glorify the Lord. However, the God of glory had a few more messages to deliver through his shining messenger. Luke records in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 1, quote, 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Unquote. There are so many connections one can draw between Stephen, the faithful witness, and Jesus, the faithful witness. B.L. Blackburn writes, quote, Readers of Luke and Acts have long noticed that various details in the story of Stephen closely correlate him to Jesus. Stephen, like Jesus, is a spirit-filled man whose empowerment is manifested in both speech and miracles. Stephen is especially at one with Jesus with respect to the opposition that they endured at the hands of Jewish unbelievers, particularly the authorities. Stephen, like Jesus, was rejected in the synagogue, arrested, and brought before the Sanhedrin, faced trumped-up charges, appealed to the Son of Man at God's right hand, committed his spirit to the Lord, prayed that his executioners would be forgiven, and died as a martyr outside Jerusalem's walls. Unquote. But the connection to Jesus doesn't end there, for Stephen is one of three people in the Bible whose faces shine. Exodus 34 records that Moses' face shines after meeting with God in the tabernacle. Jesus' face shines on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, and Stephen's face shines here in Acts chapter 6 through 7. It is not coincidental that, other than the God of glory, the shining Stephen refers to Moses more than anyone else in his address. Was there a deeper theological truth that Luke, the missionary companion of Paul, was using narrative to convey to us? In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks about the Mosaic Covenant, calling it the ministry of death and condemnation. He contrasts this covenant to the New Covenant, the life-giving covenant which he deems the ministry of the Spirit and righteousness. He uses Moses to contrast the two covenants by describing the transfigurational effect the God of glory had on Moses' appearance when they met together in the tabernacle. He says in verses 7 through 9, quote, But if the ministry of death, 
in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was? How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Unquote. As Paul continues, think about Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin with his face radiating the glory of the Lord. Quote, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit." Unquote. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, the second temple in Jerusalem was still standing. The Jewish leadership still believed that it was the place on earth where the glory of God dwelt. However, what did Stephen say to the Sanhedrin? The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. So, where does the Lord of glory dwell? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, quote, We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Unquote. Thus, Paul reasons that since Moses shone with the glory of God after meeting with him, Shouldn't we shine all the more if he dwells within us? For by his power, the Lord is transforming us into his glorious image. Is that what we see happening in Stephen while he is on trial for the gospel? As we noted, there are so many correlations between the Lord and Stephen in Acts chapters 6 through 7, particularly in the words he speaks while he is being stoned by the Sanhedrin. Is it possible that Paul had this scene in mind when he wrote these words in 2 Corinthians? Quote, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, Struck down, but not destroyed. 
always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." Unquote. It seems that Luke's account of Stephen harmonizes quite well with these words from Paul. From an eternal perspective, Stephen's momentary light affliction was producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For Paul, this is the end goal for followers of Jesus. He writes in Romans chapter 8, quote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified, unquote. Notice that Paul used the past tense for each of the words concerning what Jesus has done for us, starting with predestined and concluding with glorified. Of course, our full glorious transformation into the image of the Lord does not reach its climax until the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. The process of glorification is similar to the kingdom of God in that it is somehow yet, but not yet. It is now, but not fully. It is a current reality, but it is not fully realized until the Lord of glory returns. There is another biblical word that describes this process of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Perfection. Paul discusses the perfection process in his letter to the Philippians, describing how it too is yet, but not yet. Quote, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Unquote. The word translated perfect in verse 12 is teleao, which means to consummate, reach the end stage, or to work through the entire process to reach the final phase or conclusion. For Paul, the end goal is to know Christ fully and become like him in all things, including suffering death for the sake of the kingdom of God, resurrection, and bodily glorification. Those all are future events in Paul's mind, and yet, he adds in verse 15, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Evidently, there are perfect people who haven't yet died and been perfected. Yet, but not yet. These perfect people, quote, have this attitude, unquote, which is a phrase Paul used earlier in Philippians. Remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11? Quote, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Unquote. According to Paul, one who is perfect has taken on the humble mindset of Christ, which puts others above oneself, even at the cost of one's life, in order to glorify God. And don't think that Paul came up with this idea himself. He is just passing along what his rabbi taught and lived out. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, quote, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Unquote. The word translated here as perfect is teleos, which is basically a derivative of teleao, the word Paul used in Philippians 3. Again, in Koine Greek, perfect carries the idea of something that has gone through the necessary stages to become mature and complete. It's like Jesus is saying, God is kind toward those who hate him and blesses those who could never repay him. Grow to reflect his character and act like him. In God's eyes, being perfect is not about avoiding mistakes. Perfection is about being like Jesus, and he illustrates this clearly in his interaction with the man known as the rich young ruler. We read in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22, quote, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Unquote. When Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, he uses the word teleos again, just like he did in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He is asking the man if he truly wants to reflect the character of God. Jesus left the riches of heaven behind to bring us into his family. He embodied the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus fully demonstrated his yoke and became our perfect high priest by loving his enemies at the cost of his own life. The author of Hebrews writes, quote, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Unquote. Jesus consistently modeled the character of his father all the days of his life, and yet he too had to become perfect in order to be perfected. He had to finish his journey in order to reach his end goal. He had to completely glorify his Father in order to be fully glorified. All of us who are perfect 
are to have that same attitude. The early Christians shared that mindset. Starting in the early 2nd century AD, we begin to see them use the idea of perfection to mean imitation of the Lord. Polycarp, a personal disciple of the Apostle John, wrote in his letter to the Philippians, quote, Let us never relax our grasp on the hope and pledge of our righteousness. I mean Jesus Christ. Let us imitate that patient endurance of his. And if we do have to suffer for his namesake, why then let us give glory to him. For that is the example he set us in his own person, and in which we have learned to put our faith. Stand firm then in these ways, taking the Lord for your example. Be fixed and unshaken in your faith. Pray for all God's people. Pray too for our sovereign lords and for all governors and rulers, for any who mistreat you or dislike you, and for the enemies of the cross. Thus, the fruits of your faith will be plain for all to see, and you will be perfected in him. Unquote. Polycarp says we move toward perfection by imitating Jesus' example of patiently enduring suffering and blessing those who persecute us. Sounds a lot like lifestyle martyrdom. One of Polycarp's disciples, Irenaeus, echoed this usage of perfection around AD 180. Quote, True knowledge renders us like unto Christ if we experience the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. For this is the affinity of the apostolic teaching and the most holy faith delivered unto us. For truly, the first thing is to deny oneself and to follow Christ. And those who do this are born onward to perfection." having fulfilled all their teacher's will, becoming sons of God by spiritual regeneration and heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. The early Christians viewed lifestyle martyrdom as foundational for Christian perfection. As we will see with the next quote, they called actual martyrdom the ultimate way to complete one's earthly mission of following the Lamb wherever he goes. The perfection or completion of walking as Jesus walked. Clement of Alexandria illustrates this point in A.D. 195, quote, In love to the Lord, the spiritual man will most gladly depart from this life perhaps giving thanks both to him who afforded the cause of his departure from here and to him who laid the plot against him. With good courage, then, he goes to the Lord, his friend, for whom he voluntarily gave his body. We call martyrdom perfection, not because the man comes to the end of his life as others, but because he has exhibited the perfect work of love, unquote. Perhaps no other early Christian writer explains how martyrdom is the perfect work of love better than Ignatius. Ignatius 
was a personal disciple of the Apostle John and became the Bishop of Antioch only about a decade after Paul's first missionary journey. Ignatius was condemned to death during the great persecution of Christians during the reign of Emperor Trajan sometime between A.D. 105 to 107. During the long journey to Rome, Ignatius took time to write seven letters, six of them to prominent churches and one of them to his friend Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. In his letter to the Romans, Ignatius inspirationally explains his desired goal to die for the name of Jesus. Quote, I hope as a prisoner in Christ Jesus to salute you, if indeed it will be the will of God that I be thought worthy of attaining unto the end. Only request in my behalf, both inward and outward strength, that I may not only speak, but truly will, and that I may not merely be called a Christian, but really be found to be one. For if I be truly found a Christian, I may also be called one, and then be deemed faithful, when I shall no longer appear to the world." I am truly in earnest about dying for God. Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ." All the pleasures of the world and all the kingdoms of the earth shall profit me nothing. It is better for me to die in behalf of Jesus Christ than to reign over all the ends of the earth. For what shall a man be profited if he were to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Him I seek who died for us. Him I desire who rose again for our sake. Unquote. Unfortunately, what is pure often gets polluted by selfish desires. Since the early Christians, like Ignatius, viewed martyrdom as the ultimate example and proof of one's faith in Jesus, some began to see it as a way to secure their own salvation. They did this in part because of certain verbiage used by their peers in works like The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Even though the authors wrote that, quote, true love desires not only one's salvation, but also the salvation of all our brothers, unquote, they also made comments that seemed to suggest salvation could be attained through martyrdom itself. For instance, quote, by the grace of Christ, they despised all the cruelties of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment by the suffering of a single hour. The fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them because they fixed their eyes on the escape from the eternal unquenchable fire and the good things promised to those who endure." Unquote. Certain professing Christians who didn't want to follow the way of Jesus in life twisted statements like these to convince themselves that they could gain Christ in death by simply being killed in his name. However, this line of thinking was strongly rebuked. 
Commodianus wrote around A.D. 240, quote, Since thou desirest martyrdom, hear. First of all, overcome the evil one with thy good acts by living well. And when he thy king shall see thee, be thou secure. Many indeed err who say, With our blood we have overcome the wicked one. Thou wearest such great words vainly, who in one moment seekest without labor to raise a martyrdom to Christ. Unquote. We may be able to fool others with ostensible grand gestures of religiosity, but we can't fool God. The early Christians did view sincere martyrdom as perfection, but they did not believe one should seek it out. They followed the example of their Lord, and Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, quote, Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, unquote. In Luke 4, Jesus preaches his first sermon to the people of his hometown, Nazareth. After he highlights the faith of two Gentiles, the people fly into a rage. Verses 29 through 30 state, quote, And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way, unquote. While in Jerusalem later in his ministry, Jesus confronts the sinful desires and actions of the Jewish leaders. And like the people of Nazareth, the authorities do not take kindly to Jesus' words. Then, after Jesus truthfully highlights his divinity, quote, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, unquote. In John 10, Jesus again confronts the Jewish leaders and asserts his oneness with the Father. So, quote, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, made yourself out to be God. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Unquote. The book of Acts depicts the followers of Jesus taking this same approach when facing persecution. Acts chapter 8, verses 3 through 4 show Jesus' followers' response to the persecution brought on by Paul. Quote, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went on preaching the word. Unquote. After Paul's conversion, he learned that the Jews of Damascus were conspiring to kill him. Quote, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Unquote. Paul then went to Jerusalem, where the Hellenistic Jews also began plotting his murder. So, quote, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. 
unquote. The principle holds true that if Jesus taught and lived it, and the New Testament believers did the same, you can be certain that the early Christians followed suit. Though Clement of Alexandria described martyrdom as perfection, he also wrote around A.D. 195, quote, When again, he says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another, he who is truly brave with the peril arising from the hostility of the multitude before his eyes courageously awaits whatever comes. In this way, he is distinguished from others who are called martyrs. For some furnish occasions for themselves and rush into the heart of dangers. In contrast, those who are in accordance with right reason protect themselves. Then, upon God really calling them, they promptly surrender themselves and confirm the call. Unquote. Here, Clement says that by avoiding persecution when we are able, we prevent our persecutors from committing sin against us. However, once we are certain that God is calling us to surrender, we should courageously, humbly, and gently embrace death. Origen agrees with Clement as he writes around A.D. 245, quote, The letter teaches us to withdraw as far as it is in our power from those who persecute us and from expected conspiracies through words. To do so is to act according to prudence. When a trial comes that is not in our power to avoid, we must endure it with exceeding nobleness and courage. But when it is in our power to avoid it, not to do so is rash. Unquote. The aforementioned martyrdom of Polycarp displays that early faithful witness following the way set forth for him by Jesus and reinforced by the apostles. When learning that the empire wants to kill him, Polycarp follows the advice of the believers and flees to a less populated area. However, once God tells him that it is his time to glorify God with his death, he does his best to reflect Jesus to his persecutors. What follows is an abbreviated account of that story. Quote, We are writing to you, brothers, with an account of the martyrs, especially the blessed Polycarp, whose death brought the persecution to a close. Almost all the events that led up to it reveal it to be another martyrdom in the divine pattern that we see in the gospel. For he waited for his betrayal, just like the Lord did, so that we might follow him, in looking out for the needs of others as well as ourselves. This is why we do not approve of voluntary martyrdom, something the gospel does not teach us to do. When he heard about this, that he was going to be arrested for being a Christian, the redoubtable Polycarp was not in the least upset and was happy to stay in the city. But eventually, he was persuaded to leave. He went to friends in the nearby country, where as usual he spent the whole time, day and night, in prayer for all the people and for the churches throughout the world. Three days before Polycarp was arrested, while he was praying, he had a vision of the pillow under his head in flames. He said prophetically to those who were with him, I will be burnt alive. 
those who were looking for him were coming near. So he left for another house. They immediately followed him, and when they could not find him, they seized two young men from his own household and tortured them into confession. The police and horsemen came with the young man at supper time on the Friday with their usual weapons, as if coming out against a robber. That evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, but he was refusing, saying, God's will be done. When he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them. They were amazed at his age and his steadfastness, and some of them said, Why did we go to such trouble to capture a man like this? Immediately, he called for food and drink for them and asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted. They agreed, and he stood and prayed, so full of the grace of God that he could not stop for two hours. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. When he finished praying, they put him on a donkey and took him into the city. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitudes in the stadium, and gesturing toward them, he said, Down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Eighty-six years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. The crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks from the shops and public baths. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, undid his belt, and tried to take off his sandals. But when they went to fix him with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. Then the fire was lit, and the flame blazed furiously. We who were privileged to witness it saw a great miracle, and this is why we have been preserved, to tell the story. 
The fire shaped itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, and formed a circle around the body of the martyr. Eventually, when those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. This is the story of the blessed Polycarp, the twelfth martyr in Smyrna, though he has a unique place in the memory of all people, being remembered even by all the heathen. He was not merely an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr, whose death all desire to imitate, being altogether consistent with the gospel of Christ, having overcome the unjust governor with patience and acquired the crown of immortality, he now, with the apostles and all the righteous, glorifies God the Father with joy and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls. Unquote. Like Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Polycarp used his life to faithfully testify to the truth of the Gospels in a manner that reflected the Gospel. Additionally, like the martyrdom of Stephen, unbelievers took notice of the Christ-like way that Polycarp carried himself during the trial. Though we don't know the names of any unbelieving onlookers who eventually gave their lives to Jesus after watching Polycarp's execution, Stephen's martyrdom clearly made an indelible mark in Paul's memory. Because he faithfully bore witness to the gospel and manifested Jesus' command to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, Stephen planted evangelistic seeds in Paul that eventually produced much fruit for the kingdom of God.